Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is a presentation of an interview that I just conducted with John Moffat. He reached out to me because he thought that the listeners might want to hear his story about being in a, 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 a sex trafficking ring when he was a child. And at first I thought that this story was going to be very important for people to hear about, important for him to tell, but I had no idea the impact that this interview would have on me. This interview was quite possibly the most important interview I've ever had on this podcast. So I I really hope that you take some time to listen to it. I think it's a couple hours long because we we go into some a lot of different things. Uh, for those of you who might be triggered by sexual abuse of children, uh, proceed with caution, please, because there's it's it's not explicit, but there are stories that relate to the sexual abuse that he went through. And if you want to listen to this in parts, you know that might be a good idea as well. But this is just an amazing interview. It's not just about sex trafficking for children. It's about wisdom and recovery and strength. And so uh, let's go to that interview right now with John Moffat. Hey, deserving listeners. Today, we have a special guest with us on the podcast, John Moffat. He contacted me because he thought that the listeners might want to hear his story and his experiences with sex trafficking. Tell us what you would like us to know about. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. Having listened to several of your podcasts now, I think that a lot of times people have a misconception in characterizing pedophilia in general. Um, and I think I have a unique perspective on it as an object of, as having been an object of obsession for people with those characteristic personality types. There's a lot to be gleaned from, um, from being able to survive those types of incidents. And I think it's a lot more widespread than people realize. Yeah. A lot more widespread. Exactly. A lot of people are suffering uh, from being victimized. Uh, so what were your experiences? Because I'm actually personally curious because we've, we've talked a little bit right, uh, right. previous, but uh, I haven't heard the, the whole story. So tell me about your story. Um, so when I was young, um, there was a I, – I got – kind of pulled into this friend circle, this kind of odd friend circle. And I was kind of an outsider anyway. I was kind of a nerdy kid. And uh, I was like, I was gamer, you know. And so uh, in that regard, I was always kind of an outsider, especially in the early 90s, because that's, you know, when I was going through all that crap. And so what happened was, is I got recruited in gymnastics, like high school gymnastics of all places, you know, by this guy. And at first it was just this other guy, James, who was a mutual friend of his. And this mutual friend just so happened to be in his fifties. Right. And so that at the time didn't really seem that weird to me because he was a nice person. And because of how I grew up and the way every adult male in my entire life was, he was infinitely better than them out the gate because they all sucked at life in general. So, um, 
and that man that's a whole that's probably a topic for another day talking about how people get into situations to where it's easier for them to be victimized mm-hmm. you know but that's like my stepdad story uh, blah blah so when I got into the sex trafficking thing though basically what had happened was is James this guy he was like uh, my quote unquote father figure at the time he was as close as I was going to get you know and he was really into computers and so this is going to date me a little bit but at that time they had just came out with like four gig hard drives right and that was like huge how are you going to fill up this four gig hard drive space it's unimaginable 128 megabytes of ram like who what world are we living in you know so (laughs) so and because of that he had access to these things and i was poor and my mom was poor my stepfather had died two years earlier uh, in a in a car accident, and I was kind of like a caregiver. I wasn't really allowed a lot of opportunities to be a child. So in this arena, I was allowed to be a child, you know. And it took a little while, but eventually, through a lot a long a long period of grooming, basically, uh, it started to get into this quid pro quo scenario. You know, if you want to enjoy the opportunities to be able to act out, you know, being a child for this amount of time, the only way I can help you with the rest of your life and allow you to have those things is by giving up these certain virtues, you know, basically. And in my regard, I was kind of an easy target, you know, I was a real easy target. And the reason why was because my concept of shame at the time was not healthy at all. You know, my father, my stepfather was extraordinarily abusive on a level that I can't, it's kind of hard. He drowned me in a toilet one time because when I was like eight, you know, and he had to revive me. He pretty much, I'm, I don't know if I died or not. That's, that was kind of a surreal experience in general. But on top of that, um, he had all these stupid games that he used to like to play as part of his power trips whenever he was really drunk. And he was an alcoholic, and he was having a hard time coming to grips with uh, his own impotence, you know. It, it's a classic scenario to where, you know, impotent older men who have no other outlets take it out on the people who are dependent on him. I mean, it's just what it is. So that's kind of what he did. And uh, so James, though... He was a very caring person, you know. He really was. And uh, so in his regard, he was kind of, he was a pedophile, you know. For some reason, whenever he attached bonds to people, he attached them to children. He never really saw that same love bond in anything else other than children. However, he ended up falling into this network because apparently he got found out by this other guy. And then this other guy saw it as an opportunity, which he was more of a classical predator, he didn't he wanted power you know he he did i think in his mind if he could have found a a harem of hookers or something like that he would have easily gone into that arena instead it just so happens that the person the opportunity fell upon was something that involved selling children so that's what he did that's just where he found the victims that he needed in order to gain the power that he wanted to gain whenever all that happened you know um he was he ended up somehow i don't know how people do this i don't know how they recruit people into these sorts of things but very quickly like within like 6 weeks you know there were buyers into this network so let me let me pause you for a second and make sure i understand this first off you're in therapy right yes um actually with a former student of mine from years ago a very very talented therapist uh, uh and you uh, got 
permission to come on the podcast. Right. Not permission, but your therapist said that it was not a risk per right. se. And, right. and you've told this story before. Uh, several times, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to make sure that that's clear to the listeners um, that, um, you know, you've processed this, you're in therapy, yeah. um, you're used to telling this story. It's it's not going to be traumatic for you to tell a story. If this was the first time you were going to tell this story, it would be pretty distressing <laughs> exactly. uh, to, yeah. to, to voice it and put it out into the, to the world. You've clearly done a lot of work, which I really commend you for. Um, and uh, I'd like to hear about that later. But just getting back to your to your story here. So you were abused uh, horrifically by your stepfather growing up. And that led you to be a easy victim because you're looking for a uh, male to um, attach to. You're looking for a father figure. You uh, said that you had a different sense of shame. I'm guessing what you mean by that is that um well what did you mean by that um so i think early on there's certain concepts that children have whenever they consider something shameful right they don't want to be seen a certain way by their friends they don't want to be seen a certain way by their father they talk about things that emasculate them and those things that emasculate them are very defined they don't want to be naked in front of other people things like that so in every regard that that could have happened, those things got washed out of me early in life. I had to, I was forced to come to grips with those long before my stepfather died. One time I came home from kindergarten and there was still some crowns in my pocket. He was drunk and he had to pick me up from school. So his answer to that was, is he stripped me down naked and locked me outside while all the kids were playing in the street. And he's you all... You had some what in your pocket? Crowns. He said, he thought I stole them. Crowns? Yeah. So he stole my What's clo- a crown? I'm just curious. Crayon? Oh, crayons. Sorry. I'm, I'm from Texas. So yeah. <laughs> crayons. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, um, coloring utensils. So, <laughs> so he thought I stole them, right? Yeah. So, he's, uh, so his rebuttal to that was he stole all my clothes and locked me outside. Wow. And, right. So I get it. So it was a matter of uh, he had already violated your body and your shame and your space and uh you maybe got used to people victimizing you and it's just like well that's what that's what happens to me i don't have a right to my body i don't have a right to be not humiliated exactly uh it doesn't really trigger any uh, uh, red flags to me because this is my life I, i'm used to being treated this way that's interesting so then you meet james who is attracted to young people to have sex with he sexually attracted to young people and he groomed you over time uh tell me about that so part of the grooming process is basically determining how receptive you are to physical contact right so like a good example would be i'd be playing on the computer or with something and then it'd start out with something as simple as a hug just to see if i shy away from it you know i didn't so then it turned into something else to where he just kind of in, interfere with my, my flow, so to speak, of whatever I was doing to see if that would trigger me. And then it didn't, you know. But then eventually it started getting into things to where I would notice small instances of mild uncomfortability, but I never directly stopped him from doing anything, really, you know. So then it would be him putting his hand on my leg or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And how much time do you think was going by through this grooming process? Well, so my mom worked like three jobs. So, so we were latchkey kids, realistically. And... 
I mean, to her credit, just to put this out there, my mom at the time had this prioritization to where she thought if she could work three jobs and I was in a good school, then that was 99% of her role as a parent. And as long as she could do that, we were good. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, whatever enters a a parent's mind, whenever you're going to think to yourself, well, you know what, maybe I should spend more time with them because they might meet somebody at gymnastics who could sexually assault them. Right. You know what I mean? Realistically. And I don't, and I don't think it's really healthy to think that way about your kids anyway. I mean, you need to make them cognizant of um, being able to talk with you about certain things, but realistically outside of that, you can't avoid the world basically. So I have a question about that. So how could, because I think that's a big question for us today, the, the, the gymnastics scandal, the USA Gymnastics, and all the other uh, stories we hear about where these abuses go on for decades. And uh, the uh, thing that I think a lot of people justifiably wonder is, it's like, well, how come they got away with it? How come these kids, you know, so many of them either didn't come forward or they didn't really emphasize enough that this was happening. And um, I understand it because I've talked with so many victims before and studied it for so long that, um, you know, and I could put it into my words, but I'd, I'd like to hear from you, like going back in time, you were being sexually abused. You're in the midst of that. Um, I'm guessing you knew that there was something kind of wrong with it, that it, it wasn't um, uh, socially sanctioned at the very least. And, and uh, what could have helped you to feel comfortable to tell someone in authority during the, during those times? Um, I'm a bad example for that. But I do have another example that I can use. Um, the reason why I'm a bad example is because even though I understood it was wrong, I just didn't care. Because the reality is, is yes, the sexual abuse is traumatizing. But compared to the trauma that I had already faced in my life, it sounds kind of crappy to say, but the sexual side of it was just more physical pain. I wasn't even old enough to understand my own sexuality yet. You know, yeah, I was kind of interested in girls, but because of the other things that had happened in my life already, it just seemed like a non-starter for the most part to develop meaningful relationships with children in general because nobody my age could relate to me. Interesting. So even if someone had come forward and said all the right things and done it over the span of a few months and really just spent the time to get to know you and you know but if anything's happening you feel free to tell me no consequences i won't tell anyone else i won't even punish james i just i'm just curious if this is happening for you and we could talk about maybe what to do you would still say no nothing's happening more than likely but in another scenario one of the other people that was part of our circle who i think the reason why I eventually exposed that area was because, in large part, I think, due to him. But his parents were extremely religious. They were actually in the paper for denoting homosexuals and saying that, and basically saying that if you're homosexual, you deserve what's coming to you, whatever that is. It was a product of that day, you know. So this kid, unfortunately, wasn't a result of the James thing. He was more because of the other guy, Johnson. And so when Johnson... So Johnson was the guy who liked power. He was a total power tripper, man. So he basically just raped this kid. And I think he actually did it just to see if he could. You know, it's kind of screwed up. But, I mean, that's just the way his mind worked. And so in his regard, he took the power away from this kid and he held it against him. He's like, well, you're gay now. It wasn't a hard leap to take for a 10-year-old, you know? It's like, well, you're, you're gay now. You had sex with a guy. 
If you tell your parents, they're going to hang you. It's in the paper. You know, it's like they're going to hang you if they find out. So, I mean, you just got to deal with it. You know, and then eventually, four, four or five years later, he ended up, uh, Joseph ended up, commit, ended up committing suicide, and that was pretty tragic. Um, that's a lot to go through for a 15-year-old. Yeah. You know, and for you to have a few as your friend? Um, I wouldn't really call us friends. We didn't really have a lot in common. He was from a very religious background. Oh. And, I mean... But we existed in the same household, and we went through a lot of the same trauma, you know. And so in that regard, I'd say we had a bond. I wouldn't really necessarily call it a friendship. It's more like a mutual pain type of relationship. So you are being uh, abused by James, and it was a slow process. Uh, You uh, were um, being traumatized, but not in... Correct me if don't let me put words in your mouth. It wasn't in a noticeable way to you at the time, right? How old were you at the time? Um, it started when I was twelve. So were you aware at the time? Like your friend Joseph knew. Wow, I just got, I just got assaulted or whatever word. Right, you would, yeah. I, I got attacked violently and controlled, and this this Johnson guy like attacked me. But for you, with James, you didn't perceive it that way. Is that right? Not initially, no. And I think even in my mind, I could justify it. I could justify the evil because in my mind, there was a lot of good that came out of it. A relationship, someone. Right, there was a relationship. James taught me how to cook. He taught me how to work on computers. He taught me about software. He taught me how to use the world, basically, in a way that I never had been exposed to before. My stepfather never taught me anything. Were you with him all the all the time, every day? No, not every day. It was three or four times a week. So often, though. Often. And in in his in that relationship, it's not like every single day there was a sexual abuse. You know, it was once or twice a week. And um, But where everything got really crazy is whenever Johnson came into the picture, all of a sudden there started being other people in the picture. So Johnson was a friend of James? Yeah. And how, how did they know each other? I don't know. I mean, they never really talked to me about it. But um, I know that James didn't like him. And he apologized every time I had to talk to him or every time that Johnson would bring somebody else into the picture, he would apologize. So James didn't like him, but somehow was it associated with him or do you know why he was even involved with him? Um, I think somehow Johnson found out about James's uh, pedophilic behavior and then used it as leverage because, you know, I mean, everybody knows what happens to pedophiles. I mean, right. there's no no question there, you know. And it's like, so, I mean, you're already in this. You may as well not change your way of life type of scenario. It's the same thing that happens, how people get people into drugs and stuff like that. I mean, I had to go through a lot of that, too, later on in life. And uh, unfortunately, I was on the wrong side of that. I wasn't always a cool guy, you know. But um, So then Johnson comes into the picture, and then what starts to happen? Well, then there ends up being some type of monetary exchange that takes place. Once again, I'm not very privy on the specifics because one of the things that's unique with child sex trafficking rings is the children are not involved in the monetary process. It's about as close to slavery as you can possibly have. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, in a lot of scenarios it is. In mine, it was a more subtle introduction into it. There was four people that were that I was associated with that were sold. Um, I was one of them. Um, and uh, I think there was about nine people who were pretty, pretty uh, regular buyers, um, and so sold as a 
for individual sex acts or yes individual sex acts and yeah. how did that well, so you're 12 13 years old at this time at this yeah time? about 13 yeah and what was that like for you at that time um that's when i really didn't want to be in it anymore you know and that's when a lot more coercion took place um there was still the times that were good with James and I, I still lean on those times, you know, and thinking back to those times, I mean, it just is what it is. Um, and then I was also coming into sexual maturity during that time. So there was a lot of confusion about myself, whether or not I was homosexual, you know, and I mean, trying to justify to yourself that you're straight kind of gives you an inside perspective on what I imagine, pretty much every homosexual person has to go through whenever they're coming to the realization that they're homosexual. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for him, but I assume. Mm -hmm. Um, so in that regard, it was, it was rough, man. It was rough. And there was 23 total people that I can remember of seeing inside those circles who are fully cognizant of everything that happened. There was only six of them that were women, but, um, and that that scenario was really weird. It so was, these are people who presumably pay Johnson, yes, and maybe James to get access to you. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, one of the more surreal sur- scenarios I used to talk about whenever I was talking to victim advocates in the Navy was um, it's a very surreal. Sur- scenario to know that on the other side of the door there's two people arguing about how much it costs to rape you you know what i mean it's a really weird it's a hard feeling to digest yeah but i mean it is what it is um yeah well i'm really sorry you went through that i mean i i I mean my apology (laughs) (laughs) doesn't matter but i i I just i've never spoken directly with someone who's gone through this i've heard this story i guess i've read articles but uh, i've never heard um, i've never talked directly to someone and i just want to commend you for your bravery of sharing your story and um because one of the uh, tragedies of this is that the victims often don't come forward because they're they feel ashamed because of what they went through and also because society tends to shame them or they don't believe them or something. And so the rest of society thinks, oh, this is something that's really rare. It almost never happens. Um, it surely isn't happening today. I mean, we have a CPS and, you know, or the parents are to blame or, you know, right. or the kids wanted it or, you know, some kind of excuse. And uh, so for you to come forward and to uh, illuminate this is... is um, such a brave act uh, for, and the way you're talking about it too is just like um, you're not ashamed of it it was something that happened to you or at least you know you don't exhibit that and you're you're just saying look this happened to me um, and you're I guess you're modeling for other uh, survivors that it's not your fault this is you're not exhibiting any sort of like right. it was my fault I should have I shouldn't have Uh, I shouldn't have gone along with it. You know, you're just saying, you know, these people did this to me. I was too young. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, I was desperate for some love and attention, and it it was a slippery slope into this. Uh, And then eventually this this predator who was, like, extremely powerful and coercive. Uh, Tell me more about that. Like, how did they coerce you? Well, 
it started out originally with James trying to talk me into coming to grips with the fact that I'm going to be sold. The first time was the hardest time, definitely. The fact that everyone took a blind eye to it was amazing to me because there was this neighborhood kid who used to come over all the time, play video games with me. He had no idea. He had no idea. He was there every single day. Had no idea. He was there while it was happening? Yeah. Like in, a, in the room next door or something? Or down the hall or whatever, you know? Or there would be something that would happen on later that night, you know? And the neighborhood parents that were three doors down had no idea. They never even guessed. They never even hinted at thinking about it. If they had paid more attention, would they have seen it or, or was it? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I can only speak from the person who was in it. So I can see things that would be telltale signs, but they're only telltale like signs to me because like, I know. Like what? What are the telltale signs? Um, so first of all, it's weird for a 50-year-old guy to have kids at his house when he has no kids. That's, that's just weird in and of itself. Okay. Right. And the other side to that is whenever there's other adults there who are apparently there interacting at the same time yet your kids are there interacting. I mean, yeah, if he's a babysitter or something, I can maybe, but even then there shouldn't be other adults there just hanging out, you know, the, the, I mean, so the signs would be like, boy, you know, those neighborhood kids spend a lot of time at James's house. Right. Um, that's a, that's a yellow flag or red flag. Wow, now we're seeing a lot of other adults kind of stream in and out of there. Uh, that's another f- red flag. What's going on over there? Right. That's that's what people should have uh, asked. And there's, a, there's sometimes reasonable explanations. Later on in my life, I had a much more adaptive father figure, this dude, Brian, really great guy. He's honestly, I think the only reason why I turned out normal is because I know Brian. And he was an older person, too. And, man, I spent a lot of nights sleeping on Brian's couch. That dude pretty much, and even though he had bad habits, he was one of those very introspective people that just basically said, yeah, this is a bad habit, man. Whenever you grow up, don't do this, you know. But bad habits that, like alcohol or something? No, not necessarily. I mean, he would drink a beer every once in a while, but nobody in that house was an alcoholic. It was mostly because he was a slob. I mean, literally, that guy had like a foot and a half of just garbage on his floor whenever he had his an apartment. But it was pretty much a bachelor pad. Him and his older brother, Chris, who passed away real recently, um, and this other guy, Van, used to live there. And they used to let us hang out and do basically the same thing that I did whenever the good things were happening at James' house. You know, I could sit there and play video games, anything I wanted to know about, somebody in that house knew about, and they were very good with, with children. But they didn't hurt you. But they never hurt me. They never even entertained the prospect to hurt me. They taught me how to play basketball, you know. I mean, very normal kid stuff. And the association I had with them um, was actually due to a local gaming store, you know, and uh, because I'm a huge gamer, man, I like Warhammer 40K, Sellers of Catan, board games, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, but uh, Sellers of Catan isn't that old, but you know what I mean? It's pretty old. Yeah, pretty old. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of younger games that people would recognize. I can't really go into Talisman, you know, because no one knows who that is. But um, Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons, a lot of that, yeah, yeah, huge into it, yeah. But um, and though, and I, 
and those allowed me to escape my reality anyway. Hmm. You know, not too far to where it was unhealthy necessarily because I always had these anchors like Brian, you know. He was the first one to be, and Chris, but be the first people to ever tell you, man. It's like, yeah, dude, this stuff is cool, but you can't escape reality forever, man. You still got to pay the bills. You so know? with Johnson, and he was the like the ringleader of this. Right. And there were... Uh, several um, abusers that paid money to abuse you and other kids in the neighborhood or was it just you? Um, the other kids weren't even from the neighborhood. That was a crazy part. The only kid that was from the neighborhood is one that used to come over all the time and play video games. But And he wasn't abused. And he was never even touched. And I imagine the reason why is because he had very high receptors to what was not allowable. You know, he was be the first person just straight up, just don't touch me. You know, just... In any way. James still liked being around him because he was a kid and James liked being around kids. But he never like he never pushed his boundary further than he was allowing going to allow himself to be pushed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's kind of hard to correlate that looking back on it, you know, because thinking about that, the realistic side of it is, is I could have easily gotten out of that just by being the type of person to be like, you know what, man, just don't touch me. You know what I mean? And I imagine I probably would have been okay, you know, but... But you don't blame yourself. I don't blame myself because, I mean, realistically, I just didn't know any better and I had unhealthy coping mechanisms at the time. And once again, I just didn't have a healthy sense of being raised with a sense of shame and all this other stuff. Right. Yeah. And I think that's such a great way of putting it. You've you've resolved it in your mind and... and it's such a great model for it because people who listen have been victimized. A lot of people have been victimized to various degrees. And that notion that you're, you know, that very strong notion that you're saying of just like, yeah, I could have been different if I was like my friend who what had a strong no to that kind of violation. Um, I, I could have saved myself, but I didn't because of a very good reason, which was I was abused growing up and didn't didn't know and also was desperate for some tether to human beings <laughs> and uh, some tether to nurturance and guidance and something to do that um, I was uh, it was a it was a price I was willing to pay to, to get such an important thing. My friend probably had other father figures that he could depend on that he wasn't being uh, drown in a toilet by. Um, and that is the key that um, for not only victims to understand of themselves, it's just like to take it easy on yourself. It's just like, look, yes, it's it, it's it, it, looking back, maybe something could have been done. But given the circumstances, uh, almost everyone acts in this in this way. I mean, so many people uh, can share your story, you know, and have you heard other people tell stories similar to yours? Um, well, when I was in the Navy, it's an interesting pool of people that you get for victim advocates. A lot of times they're voluntold. It's like, we need to fill a quota. I know this is technically a voluntary program, but we need six people and no one's volunteering. So you six over there, you're going, right? And so I was part of their continuous training program. And um, it started out, I mean, I eased into the story, definitely. It originally started out with me talking about how people could become victims. That's just was the very baseline. And um, Why was the Navy interested in this? Um, well, 
a lot of people don't want to look at it this way, but the Navy is very proactive in things that it deems important, right? And for a long time, they've deemed sexual assault important. And um, so, be- among its its uh, service members, meaning that right. they might be victimized by another service member. Yeah, or or it has a lot to do a lot of times with uh, people who are left behind. Uh, so, a good example is. Um, I was a victim advocate for a very long time, and uh, there's a lot of really stupid experiments that happened during the Obama era that they were doing with service members. That was really stupid. Like what? Um, there was like this hotel they used to have in San Diego, and uh, man, dude, it was a crappy experience. You, the only way you could live there is if you're E5 and below. The goal was true, which was, which was, you know what, man, these guys, they need a break. They're E5 and below. They're getting hammed up. We're having a problem with suicide. Okay, so we're going to give them, give them the break by giving them this hotel where you can only live in it if you're E5 and below and there's no management. I'm lost. I, 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 maybe so, I'm not picking up on something. Like what? I, I don't so, even know where we're at in the story. Okay, sorry. <laughs> maybe this I is, don't understand the Navy or something. Okay, maybe. All right, so... They built this apartment complex. It's basically like a barracks, right? But you can live there. It's on base. It's called the Pacific Beacon. Okay, and if you as a break to them, it was a break to them. It gives them their own living space that's not on the ship because classically you live on the ship for your first four years in the navy. So the navy was worried that people were spending too much time in a ship and were uh, going crazy, so to speak. And wanting to hurt themselves and kill themselves. And so they're like, look, we're going to go easy on you and we're going to be more humane and we're going to let you live on land <laughs> right. uh, for part of the time. And he, here, go ahead for free. If you're E5 and below, you can live in this. Exactly. Because e, E6 or whatever, the higher rank people probably have their own homes and stuff. Well, usually, can, yeah. I mean, because they, they, they get paid more. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah, okay. So whenever that happened, E5 and below, people are typically like 23 and under, right? And it's their first time usually in their whole lives that they've ever been given any measure of freedom, especially since they joined the Navy. And they're all in this barracks, and they have a lot of free time. And there's no, like, uh, authority making sure that no one's going to hurt Exactly, it. because they have civilian staff who are running the hotel. And the civilian staff are basically all like, well, we treat it like a hotel, you know? And so we ignore them. Right. You know, the difference being the people who normally go to a hotel have nothing in common with the guy in the door next to them, so they don't talk to them. Right? The difference here is, is everybody's in the Navy. Everybody is here to blow off steam. You know, everybody's been underway for eight months or whatever. And they yeah, all I mean, I've heard stories from friends in the Navy about the amount of debauchery. Yeah, it gets crazy, man. Yeah. And and I, I was... I'm not going to say I never partook, but I was more of a foreign port kind of guy. When I got home, it was time to anchor reality. I got down to reality type things. In foreign ports, I did some crazy stuff, but, I mean, it was a foreign port, you know. I really wish I would have done more sightseeing, but that's just not where my head was at at the time. <laughs> I, got really ham- I got really hammered drunk, and I did dumb stuff. But you Yeah, know. It's, a hard, it's a hard visual, like a 19-year-old Navy guy lands in Saigon and says, oh, I think I'm going to check out the sights. Exactly, you know. It's not, it doesn't come easy, yeah. you know. But in the Pacific Beacon era, right, they, I mean... There was a, a lot of sexual assault that happened during that time. Between service members. Between service members. It happened nonstop. We're getting five, five six calls a week. You know, easy. You know, and it was just nonstop. Being raped. 
or or sexually assaulted or somewhere in between there grabbed or yeah you know and there was a bunch of crazy stuff even in my own command there was a bunch of crazy stuff and i had a small command i was on a destroyer so so um, and that makes it hard because if it's someone who's above you that abuses you then what is you know that complicates things well it does and the other side of it though is is well now you've let the cat out of the bag you have this navy program and like all programs in the military they move like molasses and once they start moving that direction it takes a lot to stop them you know and um so it's just like all right well now we have the pacific beacon well now there's this obvious problem that's shown up and it's a freaking epidemic you know, so then they eventually fixed it by move by putting on every single floor. They have geo bachelors. Do you know what a geo bachelor is? A geo bachelor is somebody who has a wife that's in another state or a husband and who's in another state. They're in this state, right? But so the wife or husband gets all the BAH and allows them to maintain their household while they're over here. But in the meantime, they stay in a barracks usually. But then they're like, you know what, man, we're gonna put one on every floor and like they're side job there's a gig is to just make sure nothing too crazy happens on the floor and they have like authority and they have authority because they're an e6 it's a ranking structure any e6 talks down talks to an e5 then you know they're gonna at least recognize their their structure and and the e6 most e6s know what where to take it if they don't listen you know you can call base police and base police are going to show up and the civilians can try to stop you all they want to but you're still on a navy base you know, and right. base police show up. And stuff. So what was your involvement in this? I, I was a victim advocate. So a lot of times I'd end up talking to all these victims, like just nonstop, man. It just happened all the time, you know. And um, and what was the, like, were you there to listen or were you there to listen and try to help? Um, well, if you can imagine how hard it is for a normal sexual assault trauma victim to navigate through the system, it's hard. Yeah. That's why most people don't report. Right. And the Navy... Now imagine you're going through the bureaucracy of the Navy. Uh, originally, yeah. like Navy training was, was, originally it was terrible, and it's evolved a lot over the years. You know, it's gotten a lot better. I can't imagine that you can find a, any organization, honestly, that puts more effort into fixing it than the military does. They put a lot of effort into it, you know. Mm-hmm. But do they always succeed? No. But, I mean when we figure out the perfect recipe, we'll all be better for it. But until then, you know, we just try our hardest to move on. Originally it was all like, well, you know, people who usually do this, they get sexually assaulted. Right. And that was a horrible way to look at things because victim blaming. Yeah. Cause it's, cause it turned into victim blaming. That's exactly what happened. Well, the Navy said, well, you know, you go to your chief and it's all like, well, I got raped last night. Oh, well, let's go through the questionnaire we had in training. Were you wearing provocative clothing? Were you in a bar? But, oh, well, the training says if you don't do anything fun, then you won't get raped. You know, it's just all like, dude, come on, man. You know, so, but then it eventually evolved into see something, say something, which I think is a much better approach, you know. There, I mean, if there's 5 million sailors, right, in, in San Diego, you know, Something's somebody's is and somebody sees something and they have it in their mind that this see something say something initiative you know then if they see something happening it doesn't matter what they're wearing you know it's your it's your role to step in you know save your shipmate and so um i think that initiative was a lot better it was a lot better but when it came to my role as a victim advocate the reason why the navy got interested in it so interested in it was because they were devising this continuous training program man and because the problem that kept happening was um 
they were going through these victim advocates like crazy, man, and people don't stay in it very long. They, they, they do their tour, and they're like, dude, I'm done with this. you know. And they'd have maybe one or two victims a year, and then they weren't servicing those victims very well and helping them navigate through the system. So the advocates were burning out because of the system or because having to hear the stories or what? A mix of both. So originally it was all like, we're going to give you this training on how to be a victim advocate. It's a 40-hour training. Okay, now you're a victim advocate forever. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, well, that doesn't certify you to treat victims in any way. And so they decided that, well, we need continuous training. Well, what's in this continuous training? Well, things that more immerse you into the culture of victim advocacy and give you more tools, basically, to help victims. And now, man, you're talking 120 hours a year or something like that, that you're having to go through this training. And you help them with the process of the... um uh, internal legal process of right. of reporting it um, or not reporting it and giving them their options. Okay, because if you can imagine a scenario to where you have someone who's in charge of a Dairy Queen, let's say you're the the boss of a Dairy Queen, and one of your employees gets sexually assaulted at your Dairy Queen, do you, in your modest mind, imagine that you're equipped to deal with this situation? Yeah, it'd be rough. It'd be rough, right? Well, in the Navy, the way they decided, well, we have a bunch of managers at Dairy Queens, you know, and one of their sailors just got sexually assaulted. Okay, what do we do? Well, now we have someone we can call. You know, we got this victim advocate we can call. Okay, let's call a victim advocate. Okay, a victim advocate is going to tell them what what they can and can't do. And it's like, look, man, you're, you're first class. This is what you can and can't do. And the one thing you can't do is, you know is uh is really put this back on the victim in any way you can't do that you know and so you kind of and so a lot of times what would end up happening is i'd have this victim and then a first class a chief or somebody would be calling me constantly about some problem they're having with the sailor that i'm helping and whether or not the action they're about to take is okay because they're just nervous about making a misstep because they want to help these people but before they just never had anyone to bounce that idea off of so you might problem solve like they would say, under me, I have two Navy people. One of them abused the other one, and they're both under me. Right. And uh, do I separate them? Do I discipline the abuser? Uh, that kind of thing? Yeah. And um, victim advocates can't give orders because we don't have any authority. The only thing we can say is, is like, look, man, this is, this is what the Navy requires. This is what the law is. These are your choices. This is the one I would recommend. We can give recommendations. And they have to make their own choice. They're still the boss. You know, Were we can't people take... criminally charged sometimes? Uh, yeah. And, I mean, that's another animal in and of itself, though. The, but, I mean, the legal process in the military is... I really don't like it, but <laughs> for a lot of reasons. You know, I've have seen quite a few court-martials, and I think that the problem I have with it is is it's a hard idea to... A grasp, but a lot of times I feel like the person who perpetrated the incident probably didn't want to, even at the time. You know, they probably didn't recognize what was going on. I didn't. I don't think it didn't create a victim because it did. You know. Yeah. But at the same time, the problem was the situation. So, did you ever talk to the perpetrators? No, I actually I can't. Was actually. there a program for that of helping them? Um, well, I mean, it's like the criminal justice system, you know, you have a representative and people who represent you, but you're a criminal at that point. Yeah. But I mean, the way you're talking about it is, 
one that actually is very helpful for perpetrators uh, in any situation, not all. Like the, the Johnsons of the world uh, are not necessarily influenceable. The, the James of the world might be, though, of like, okay, I, I get that you have this impulse, um, but I also get that you have empathy and you don't want to hurt people. So how can we help you to get your needs met sexually or otherwise romantically that doesn't actually create a victim, which you're not going to live well with. It's going to be hard for you to sleep at night. So how do we do that? Um, that's an extreme kind of situation, but in a, another situation I can imagine with young Navy personnel of a 19 year old kid who uh, has never been outside the house, has never drank before, has never, had sex before or hasn't had sex very much and has seen a lot of hip hop videos or something and thinks like, well, that's what you do, right? You just walk up and you say lewd comments and you grab them and, and they're awkward or they don't know what to do. And, and they're trying to impress their, their buddies or something. And they're not inherently out to harm anyone, but they're confused and young and overwhelmed and stressed out and blah, blah, blah. And you can help them and say, okay, you created a victim, which is not okay. Um, let's talk about how you got there because I'm picking up from you that you're not a psychopath and you actually care about other human beings. So, you know, how can we navigate that? Um, that sort of thing doesn't really exist as, in the Navy or in society because we just right. instantly label these people as evil. They're all evil and they all need to be strung up instead of trying to approach them in a more humane way, in a way that actually reduces victims. Right. Well, I mean, it's a concept of justice. I mean, I think the misconception people ought to have is the thing we need to seek first is justice. You know, and I don't really agree with that ideology. I don't seek justice for anything that ever happened to me because I think it's a silly concept. Do I think the Johnsons of the world need to be locked up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I think James's need help? I do. I absolutely do. What do you think would have helped James? Um, I don't... I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think that, I think that he had a genuine love for for me and for other children. You know, I really do. I felt that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but I also know that that went too far. I mean, it just went way too far. And could he have been convinced to? Because it sounds like he had a caring heart, but a compulsion, shall we say, to have sex with young people that had no functional outlet. Let's just, let's just say, right. Um, what could have, do you think he was convincible? Cause you know, people on the internet, there's, there's people like him pedophiles who have come forward and said, I'm attracted to children, but I'm learning how to deal with that impulse and I don't abuse kids. And, if you just left me to my own impulses, I would, but I, I, I refrain, you know, restrain myself and because I don't want to hurt other people. And I, I recognize that. And, uh, could James have been one of those people? Do you think? Um, I think he could have, um, I really do. You know, how, how would that have worked at what would have helped him people to talk to or something? I think that it's a disassociation problem i mean if i had to guess i mean it's just guessing uh, but i think the problem with it is is 
at some point he lost the ability to disassociate his sexual needs with you know his emotional needs um i think that in a lot of places in society people do that too though because once you can attribute your sexual needs to where they should be you know then I think that those start to realign themselves because I, I ran into, I didn't run into a pedophile problem. I was never really interested in people who are younger than me, but I had, I mean, I had sexual encounters that were voluntary with other men. I was never gay, you know, but I didn't know. I just had no idea. I had no bearing on it. You know, I was, and I was just all like, well, this is all I know, you know? So with James, if he had somewhere to explore that, he might have found a functional way to express his sexuality that wasn't harming other people. Is that what you're saying? I, I, I imagine that. He was sort of locked in on like, well, this is all I know right. is to have sex with you. And I people. think that's why pedophiles a lot of times end up becoming pedophiles as adults. You know, because for whatever reason, the sexual triggers, whenever they start building up, builds up in the relationship between an older individual of the same sex with a younger individual. And, sorry okay um but um so and because of that i think that in james's case especially you know i imagine you know not knowing much about him he's been dead for a while now but i imagine what probably happened is he was probably sexually abused as a child and then he because of the awkwardness that that created in him he just never got another relationship until late in life to where he was the person to be in a position to perpetrate on younger people in the same way that he was perpetrated on his child. And I mean, I imagine that's how it went, but that's the only real way I could think it went. You know, so you're thinking that if he had someone to talk to or some way of processing what had happened to him, that he might've been able to find a, a partner, uh, right. uh, someone that was an adult and consenting that um, would have helped him to nurture that side of him that was uh, attracted to non-children. Right. Because, I mean, he had a very analytical mind. James had a very analytical mind. And whenever he would justify things to me, he would go out of his way to justify it. He would curtail the research he made to make his hypothesis that it was okay true. Because he didn't have anyone to have a rational conversation with because if he ever brought it up that he would have been... Well, he'd been chastised. He would have been done. Right. You know, there's no one to bring it up to. Right. You know, and in that regard, so because of that, he had always come up with this concept uh, where once upon a time the Pope had come up with this edict that uh, priests, in order to maintain their vow of chastity, could uh, take on a boy no older than the age of 12. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No. Now, a very old thing. It didn't last very long. But, um, it was like in the 1500s or, or something. something like that, yeah. And I don't remember the exact context of it, but I remember he used to bring it up a lot. You know, and he's all like, well, that's because some people have these needs, and so to speak. You know, and I think it actually probably had more to do with the fact that he had to convince priests that they now had to take a vow of chastity for a religion that was really old, so that way they can indoctrinate, you know, the uh, Celtic people. And uh, they just were not indoctrinated to that idea at all. So they're like, well, how are we going to meet our needs? And it's like, well, you got this, I guess. You know, just throwing something out there. But um, so if he had some, I mean, I'm often or not often, but I'm sometimes ranting about this, that 
our society shames this sort of thing from from both for both victims and for, for perpetrators so so severely that both victims and perpetrators that might be helped if uh, they were able to talk to someone are closeted both of them are and so if obviously for victims we need to stop that stigma so that they can come forward and and uh, it, it just say look i was victimized and i need help and i need to process this and i i want to i want to talk about this the way the way that you are um not only that but uh, for perpetrators who either are thinking about perpetrating or have and are thinking about doing it again for them to be able to come forward and talk with someone and say, look, I'm struggling. Uh, I, I, there's a part of me that really wants to do this. And there's a part of me that really doesn't. Is there someone that can like help me, you know, to figure this out uh, because of the stigma, we keep them in the closet so that they don't reach out. I mean, not every, the Johnsons aren't going to reach out, but the James might have when James was like 25, he might've reached out to someone. Or even the teachers, man. The what was that? Probably, the teachers probably would have too. The four of the women that were in that area, they were teachers. Teachers, yeah. The perpetrators yeah. in the sex trafficking, they the ones who were paying to have sex with kids, they were teachers. Yeah, they might have come forward and said, "I have a problem, and right. uh, can someone help me with this problem?" Yeah, I mean, theirs would felt more like frustration more than anything. They felt like they were at their wits end because they were at impoverished school districts and they just couldn't ever reach out to anybody and every effort they ever made to help a child ended up getting dashed. So a lot of times their fetishes would usually play out with something that was malevolent originally. You know, like the first time you would meet with them, it would be this really aggressive just outburst and it would just escalate and escalate and escalate, you know, and like verbal or physical or uh, sometimes both women don't have a tendency to be physical. So a lot of times they try to go for the emotional abusive side of it as much as possible because they were still teachers. Something in their mind made them want to be a teacher at some point. So whenever it played out, right, it was more like. They just wanted to degrade you, but they weren't even seeing you. They were seeing some other person that they tried so hard to help who ended up destroying their life anyway. You know, that's what it felt like. Wow. I mean, this is mind-blowing. So you're sitting there in a room in James's house while this teacher who you know is a teacher, you're like, oh, yeah, she's... You know, Mrs. Smith that teaches. No, she wasn't at my school. But she did you know school. she was a teacher? I knew she was a teacher. Oh, she's yeah. a teacher that teaches at the high school that I might go to one day. Uh, here she is, a public sort of figure. She's not like someone lurking in the shadows. This is a public high school teacher. She's, uh, she's paid money to a sex trafficker to come into a bedroom with you and berate you uh, emotionally uh, for for money and you have to take it. Uh, I, 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 this is, this is, uh, this is awful to hear. About. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. And, and, and also involve sex as, as well. Um, with, with the women, typically not usually the degradation involves some type of urination or some type of that type of degradation. Like they would urinate on you. Yeah. Wow. And it, it, did it feel sexual to them? I mean, I, it just because it, you know, it, did it feel like they were doing it for some sexual gratification, or was it mainly a, like an emotional? Uh, the first time, almost never, almost never was there any type of sexual component. The very first time that you'd ever meet them, um, 
third or fourth time, there would be some type of semi-sexual component. And then it just kind of felt like a pity party after that. It kind of felt like they were trapped in this ring. And then they were really hoping that they were going to get the emotional release. And they still hadn't got it yet. But now they've come to the realization that the only thing they've done is traumatize this kid for six hours of his life total, you know. And it's just all like, then all of a sudden they're like, well, this has to work. You know, this has to give me what I'm looking for. Otherwise, this is for nothing. I'm an awful person, you know. And at some point, they have to come to that realization. And that's whenever they start getting into this whole bipolar thing. It's really crazy. This that's what thing? Bipolar is, I don't know what the clinical term for it is, but they'll reach these very highs and very lows very rapidly, like while extremely they're... rapidly, like while immersed into it. They'll have these rapid fits of aggression, and then it'll break down into them just bawling, and then I'll turn into aggression again. And then it's like half the time they didn't even make sense. What was that like for you? You're 13 sitting there in a room with this. What's ha- what's happening for you? You know, most of the time, especially after the first couple of times, the only thing I can say is that most of the time it's, it feels like an out-of-body experience. You know, your coping mechanism eventually becomes, this is something that's happening to my body, man. I'm just watching it play out. Wow. I'll come back to it later, you know? Wow. And um, I learned how to do that really young, though. And, uh, I mean, most of the stuff that happened with my stepfather, that was a very similar experience. He had this stupid thing to where he'd have, like, five types of beer in his refrigerator. And then he'd ask you to go get one. And then no matter which one you got first, it was always the wrong beer. So he'd wait for you to turn around, then he'd throw it at you, like, still full of beer. And then he'd tell you to go get the right one. And whatever one you got second was usually the right one, mostly just because he already got his humor out of it. And he just thought it was hilarious. And so, I mean, most of the time, those things, you just like, this is just something that's happening, man, you know? And then they'd ball, and then they'd want you to, like, and then eventually it got into this whole them asking for a forgiveness thing. And, I mean, the only reason why I eventually got out of that is I, I don't even think it was a real diagnosis, but eventually they were trying to figure out why I was depressed. My mom was trying to figure out why I was rapidly depressed all the time. My only response to her was drugs because it was an easier thing to say. I was like, fine, I'm using drugs. Because that's where she went. That's the first thing in her mind where she went. Are you using drugs? Well, sex trafficking wouldn't be something that would... Well, yeah, and that's not going to be the first thing you drum to anyway, you know? (laughs) It was like, obviously, what's happening to my son is he's being trafficked by 23 individuals three nights a week while I'm at work. I mean, who the hell thinks about that? Yeah. You know? So, I mean... But I, but eventually, what ha- that's what happened, man. That's exactly what was happening. But in her mind, she, she's like, simplest possible terms, he must be using drugs. And then what? I just told her I was using drugs. And then- so, so they started diving into these labs and trying to figure out what's going on with me and all this other stuff. And then during, I had this anomalous reading during one during a spinal tap, if you can imagine that. And that's a really rough thing to go through. And um, this was a drug test. Um, no, this was, uh, they kind of ruled out drugs because my mom worked in a lab. So they ruled out drugs through a lot of piss tests, a lot of blood tests, just standard blood work. Eventually they found this anomaly and they wanted to track it down. They tracked it down and they had identified it as syphilis. Now, if you can imagine the implications in a sex trafficking ring, I'm out. I'm done. You know? Right. They don't want nothing to do with me and the health board's involved and a lot of people are involved now. 
So you're telling James, by the way, they're testing me for syphilis, and then you, then the word gets out, oh, well, we can't have him be a victim anymore because no one wants syphilis. <laughs> right. And, I mean, this even included James, like, fell off the map. And so James might have syphilis. Right. And so they test. So the, when the health board shows up, they didn't show up with child protective services. They didn't show up with anybody. It's just the health board showing up. It's like, hey, man, we're going to interrogate. Show up where? At my house. At your house. Hey, man, it's time to talk about how you got syphilis because I have an STD. They and came I'm, to your house? Yeah. That's interesting. And they're all like, okay, well, you know, I'm an investigator with, you know, whoever. I, I might have been the CDC. I don't know. Um, because I was really young, you know, and it's kind of all blurred now, but especially that part of it. Because once that started happening, man, stuff just started going downhill quick. I'm going to throw this out there. I suspect that was a CPS worker. You it's, think so? It sounds like a child protective service worker. Maybe, but the interrogation didn't seem very linear and... It felt like an interrogation, which doesn't usually make I mean, me I, think CPS worker. It well, might have been. I don't know. I, I don't know, obviously, either. But if I was to take a guess, it would be a CPS worker and that the CPS worker didn't have a very good bedside manner. <laughs> but that's probably true. Because yeah. that happens sometimes. That's true. I mean, you know. You, some are very nurturing and very nice, and some aren't. That's true. Um. But anyway, so they're like, hey, you know, I want to talk about your sexual partners. And I'm like, oh, I don't have any of those. And he's like, well, syphilis doesn't get itself, you know, basically. Right. Um, and so eventually I had to give him a name. And so in your mind, what name do you think I gave him? James. Of course. Of yeah. course I gave him James. Yeah. But the hardest thing for me to come to grips with is why didn't I give him Johnson? Right. Yeah. Why? Why didn't you? Um, I think I wasn't afraid of James, you know? I wasn't afraid of the reprisal. Right. You know, and I, I think that's probably what it was. I mean, there's no way to know for sure. And I don't know if this is what was happening for you, but the reason why I said James was because those other people weren't really sexual partners. They were they were like freaks who were right. abusing you. Yeah. James was your sexual partner. Right. Right, in terms of how you saw it back then. And so... If someone asked me in those situations, like just yeah, by pure association, who, who are you having sex with? I'd be right, like, well, that's the person I'm having sex with. These other people are just people who abuse me. Yeah, right. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Like if he had asked, uh, well, who's abusing you? You know, who's who's? Uh, I might have given him who's somebody harming else. you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> then that would have been a different kind of question. Right? Yeah, Johnson was more of a ringleader, though. He never really participated, which is kind of crazy too. Yeah. But so you said James, and then they probably talk to him yeah they talked to him and he tested negative which is why i think that it was probably some type of false reading that they got i think it was just a bad test i still got treated for it because i mean the treatment's just penicillin you know a lot of it but i mean and it's still on my record for like ever which sucks but i don't know but whatever anyway regardless i got treated for it and james tested negative and then they came back and they're like well let's talk about who else you had sex with you know and i didn't give him anybody because already in my mind i was like well who the hell do i name i don't even know anybody's name right i kind of knew johnson's name but i'm not but i never had sex with him so you know right i don't know like who do i name so the way they were coming across to you you're 13, 14 at this time? I was uh, 15. Yeah. 15. Wow. So the, the sex trafficking went on for a few year, a couple of years. Yeah, several, yeah. 
and instead of saying, hey, uh, I'm on your side, let's talk about this, um, this is why I'm asking you these questions, I'm, 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 I want to help you, it came across to you like they were just interrogating you. Well, they were just looking for an out, man. You know, it seems like they just really wanted to close the book on this, you know. And I was just like, okay, man, I don't, I don't got nothing for you, man. I don't know what you want from me. And I just kind of shut them, shut down, you know. Yeah. And so they were just all like, well, maybe it was a cute, like very sarcastically. I very, I remember that part very clearly. It's like, maybe you were like the first person who didn't contract it sexually. And then he just like packed up his shit and rolled out. Yeah. And I'm just all like, what the hell do you do with that, you know? Yeah. And my mom never wanted to talk about it after that. And I think it had more to do with her assuming that I just wanted to not talk about it. You know, and her also assuming that it was some random sexual act with other kids or something, right? You know, and she never really, she never really knew the full extent of it. And even when I kind of talked about it, I was very broad in the terminology. You know, yeah, it's like what happened over there? Well, sex happened over there. You know, but I, I guess it could have been a public health person. I mean, sometimes public health is absolutely interested in like the spread of a certain right. STI through a through a population. Um, did your mom ever? find out about all this um she found out about james obviously she found out about some of the other stuff but nothing too detailed um and it's hard for me to go into it with her mostly because she just takes it so personally obviously you know whenever i try to talk to her about jim my my dad my stepdad um Everybody named Jim in my life really sucks. I don't know why. <laughs> my real father's name was Jim. He kind of walked out early. Uh-huh. And then she got hooked up with another Jim. He was hyper abusive. And the person who molested me is James. I don't know. I don't trust Jims. Just don't do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's like an astrology thing there. I don't know. But regardless, anyway. So, um, yeah, she just, when I brought up Jim, she still apologizes, man. Like I go home every once in a while, we'll talk about stuff and she still apologizes to this day. I know she like really hates herself for everything that happened, but I mean, the way I look at it, man, is I couldn't have been anything like I am now if I wouldn't have been through that. It's kind of crappy that it had to happen that way. But I mean, the realistic side of it is, man, I was, I was a veteran. The real way I got through everything I went through in the Navy was because none of that I mean, as horrific as it was, the concept of death was indoctrinated me very early. I didn't have to wrestle with that concept after I got in the military. You know, the concept of having to degrade yourself, the concept of having being naked in front of other people, the concept of having being integrated with people you don't agree with, all these things. It's, it's like that's it, it was already second nature. You know, the hard part, the the best thing that the military gave me was is the breakdown process of boot camp was easy. The build-up process, that was hard, you know? It's like there's stuff in your life you actually have to care about. And it's all like, okay, you know, like what? You know, I, I came from, you know, Euless, Texas. I seriously had been selling drugs for like four years prior to joining the Navy. I was never really a user, but I, but that's what I did, you know, because minimum wage sucks. And eventually you want to get out of your hole. You know, you want to get out of the suck. And the only way you can do that is by making money. And you can't get any job but minimum wage jobs. So, and minimum wage at the time was $5 an hour. Yeah. So, so then you, because the ring 
identified you as someone who might have syphilis and or talking to authorities, they ostracized you and James. Yes. And did you your relationship with James continue after that? Um, no. James reached out once. And this is another moment that really sticks in my head. It has stuck in my head my whole life because I don't can't imagine what my mom was thinking. But this is after she knew about James. James had called one time, several months later. And he had called to talk to me. And my mom answered the phone. And I remember the look on her face like she was just seriously just about to start crying. But all she did is she just looked at me and was like, do you want to talk to James? So you think he told her? I don't know. Uh, but I knew that she knew about him. You know? And, yeah, and I was just like, nah. Like man. she had figured it out after the fact or well, during she that had, time? She had known at that point. Because this is after the CD, the whoever came to interview oh, right, me. Right. This is after all that. So my mom knew what happened. Right. right. But then it was just all like, so do you want to talk to James? And then I guess I just made a conscious decision that I just didn't. I'm like, I'm out now. I'm just done. I don't, I'm out. Yeah. You know? And then for several, then... Both of our phones. (laughs) I know. It's crazy. (laughs) Always at the most inopportune times. (laughs) So, but then it's just, it was hard. It was hard, you know, and that was a lot to go through. Yeah. So related to that, I've talked with victims of childhood sexual abuse of a similar scenario as yours. Uh, One woman emailed me or we talked on the phone. I can't remember. Listen to this podcast. She might be listening right now. Uh, years ago, she was telling me about how there was a neighborhood guy who uh, had groomed her in a very, very similar way to the way James had. And as an adult, she looks back and she's like, yeah, I mean, it was traumatic for me. It was abusive. And I certainly had a lot of negative effects from it. But I still have a soft spot in my heart for him. He was a good guy. Uh, He was one of the only people who really listened to me. Um, he had a kind heart. What he did was wrong, and um, and I've been damaged by it. Um, but he's not a monster, and there's a part of me that um, still loves him in some ways. Uh, is that what your experience is? I wouldn't say love is the right emotional context. Because even from a sexual perspective, it was never really that enjoyable. You know, I just, it wasn't my bag, man. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the human contact more than anything. And it took me a long time to disassociate the the sexual component of that with the emotional com- component of that. And is there a type of love? Maybe. I don't know. It's more of, a, it was an emotional connection on some level that was not realistic and not even close to anything that I experienced before that my family for the most part wanted to pretend I didn't exist you know children are kind of seen not heard you know I need you to go do chores for me and stuff like that they liked my little brother a lot you know they they loved him because he was blood everybody gave him give Christmas presents you know and stuff like that I never got any of that shit so he was your younger brother biological to your stepfather yes yeah and that had its own problems and for a long time, I blamed him for that too, Chris. But I mean, he was like 
six. The reason why he drowned me in a toilet is because my stepfather didn't really like doing all the crap that is required to take care of a baby. So, you know, if you can imagine a seven-year-old trying to bathe a two-year-old, yeah. it's kind of the reality I was in. And then I screwed up somehow. Chris coughed, and then Jim thought I was trying to drown him, so wow. he decided to try to drown me. Well, it sounds like your stepfather was... Very much interested in harming other people arbitrarily. Yeah. Uh, he was that kind of person. And there wasn't anything you could have done right that would have... Well, there wasn't. There really that. wasn't. Yeah. He knew my mom was kind of the breadwinner. So in that regard, he behaved himself when she was around. But for the most part, the deck, second she walked out the door, man, and the gloves were off. Wow. And it was like that for a long time. The neighborhood kid, JB, he loved JB. I don't know why. And JB was just a total asshole. I mean, he was a kid, you know, and in that regard, he had a lot of coping mechanisms that he was trying to cope with, but he was like a traditional kid. I imagine he was what my stepfather really wanted as a child. And I just wasn't it. I was intellectually inclined. I really liked art. You know, I liked to draw. I liked to do all these other things. I didn't want to play baseball. He made me play baseball. Like, he just forced me to play baseball. And if you want to talk about making the most unexpected experience possible, just imagine knowing that if you don't hit the ball today, he's going to kick your ass. And then he did, you know, because I really sucked at it. <laughs> you know, it's coming. You know, it's always coming. Oh, my God. And so soccer was something I took a lot more to. I really liked soccer. Okay. And, um, yeah, I was always into, I was always more into academia, but independent academia. Yeah. I was never good in school uh, ever as far as grades go, but I always knew a lot of stuff, which used to drive, if you can imagine being a teacher in that scenario, it just drives you crazy. You know, it's like, I know you know this. Why are you not doing your homework? Because I know it. I don't see the purpose in doing the homework for it if I know it. Well, I would suspect, given the amount of abuse you're going through uh, and the kids that I've treated in a similar situation, it's hard to pay attention and hold concentration long enough to uh, follow through on those kinds of things. Exactly. Um, and uh, it's it's no wonder that you had a bit of an authority problem well right <laughs> and following directions because of you know what you were going through so after you essentially ended it with James and you got out of the sex ring because of the um attention or the STI it's hard to know exactly you know right. what 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 decision but they stopped targeting you they stopped reaching out to you uh you uh, then you meet the uh Brian I had known Brian before that but I did I never hung out with him you know and he was an older guy who lived in the neighborhood too right who also had young people over to his house to play video games um not initially. Originally, we just played board games in the same space, basically. But there, I think the way I started hanging out with them was Daniel, one of my best friends growing up, his older brother, Philip. Um, Daniel would always tag along with Philip. Philip was significantly older, closer to Brian's age. And so Philip would go hang out with them, and Daniel would go hang out with them. And by contingent, I would tag along with Daniel. So Brian wasn't 50. He was, like, in his 20s or something. Yeah, like, like he was, like, in his late 20s at the time, or early 20s, maybe. I don't know. I don't even know how old Brian is, now that I think about it. I just talked to him, like, two weeks ago. I have no idea how old he is. 
Oh, well. Anyway. Does he know your story? No. No. <laughs> Imagine he will someday. But he isn't the type of person who takes thanks very well, if that makes any sense. Okay. So, and so imagine if I ever tried to quantify how much of my life he saved. I don't think he would even acknowledge it. You know, he'd just be like, well, all I did is hang out, man. <laughs> you know, it was always second nature to him. He never consciously did anything. Oh, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that. I hope so. Yeah. So he was there for you. Oh, yeah. And a stable, n- not a Jim or a James. Right. And he was never judgmental. And that was the other thing that was huge, you know. He never laid any edicts on me. His rules were his apartment. You know, even when I was selling drugs, he's like, you can do what you want. You just can't do it here, man. If cops show up at my door looking for you, you're done, man. I can't, I, I'm, not, I'm not dealing with that. And he's like, so you can go be free, do whatever, man. Just never let it show up at my door. Not happening. I'll even bail you out of jail, but they never show up on my front door. So guidance, realistic yeah. limits, and nurturing? Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And his older brother, Chris, I used to stay up late nights. He used to work graveyard. And so on his days off, he would just be hanging out, you know, like 10 o'clock. I always had really bad insomnia from a very early age. But um, so from like 10 o'clock at night to like 7 in the morning, man, he'd just be hanging out, just playing video games because that was his thing, EverQuest. And um, it was a time suck. Yeah. Yeah. Evercrack. Yeah, exactly. Never rest. <laughs> so he um, he gave me a lot of my good advice in life, man. Uh-huh. Chris knew everything. He should have been a librarian. There's no doubt in my mind. Like there was never a time when I came up with a piece of literature, sci-fi, a classical literature to where he did not have something intellectual and well-informed to say about it. And that was before the days of Google. So the only way you could have known it is by actually reading it. Right. You know, that guy, Chris was awesome. You know, he was a classic garage genius. So good role models to have in your life. Then you join, then you start selling drugs, blah, blah, blah. And then you join the Navy. Yeah. And then fall into uh, this victim advocacy program. From the sound of it, you said that someone just volunteered you for it. Basically, they're looking for volunteers. But what a weird coincidence that you would be the perfect person to do that job. I, yeah. And at the perfect time. That's the crazy part about it. Whenever I moved here, I didn't realize that I was in an anomalous situation because whenever I became a victim advocate, Pacific Beacon was a year around the corner. And then a year around the corner, we're getting four calls a week. Man, I'm just, I got a full docket of people that I'm talking to all the time, you know. And then I, I'm like, okay. And that lasted for about a year and a half. And then I come up here to Seattle. To Seattle. Bainbridge. And, uh, no, I was over at um, TRF, Trident Refit Facility, over in uh, Silverdale. Okay. And, um, yeah, I was a victim advocate there. And then they were just like, you have all this experience, you know? And I'm like, yeah. And Candace, who's a great lady, um, she was she was the civilian advocate. She has about a million and a half years worth of experience under her belt when dealing with victims. I mean, that girl is awesome. She's amazing. Um, and so she was a person I really connected with the most. But she was like straight up is like, I don't know why this happens this way. But every time you get the phone, you get a phone call. We have people who have been victim advocates for five years, never talked to one victim, not one time. They hold the phone for a week. No one ever calls. 
He's all like, we've had six victims in the last year. Three of them have been on your watch, you know, and I'm just all like, I don't know, man. It's just the way it played out. What do you think it is? I don't know. I'd like to think of some type of celestial karma or something. Somebody's looking out for somebody just using me as a vessel, but. Does it benefit you to be that lightning rod? Yeah, it does, you know, and it definitely did. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And I enjoyed the training aspect of it. I really did. Um, and I think that the reason why I'm trying to look for more public circles now is just because I'm not in the Navy anymore. You know, I don't have that avenue anymore. And Well, it makes me tear up to think about because of the glory, you know, you know, we're talking sort of history and intellectual on a certain level, but the, the human aspects of this, you know, the, um, the people who are coming off of a abuse incident of some kind, they're alone. They don't know what to do. Uh, maybe they've been abused many times in their lives and they never had a, a Brian and they didn't have the resources or something. And they call you the perfect person who can be sympathetic to them, um, not just on a book level, but in a very real level. If anyone knows the plight of the survivor, it's you. And what a wonderful uh, safe haven you must be for those people. I hope so. I mean, they can only be really the only ones that tell you that, but I try to be, you know. And um, I spent a lot of time at the Navy Hospital, man. I really did. But, and there, you meet a lot of cool people and some really strong people. Um, but hospital, you, meaning the victims are still in the hospital? Yeah. Yeah. It just became common procedure that if you get sexually assaulted at Naval Hospital, they're going to call a victim advocate. We have a non disclosure agreement for all our victims anyway. So, I mean, we can't disclose anything. So, the Navy offers a confidential reporting method or a non confidential reporting method. It's really up to the victim. And, like, one of the biggest roles of victim advocates is putting it in the victim's hands. It's like, look, man, you can report this or not. This is up to you. You know, this is your game. And then if they say, if I don't report, what has to happen? Well, there's still consequences. You still didn't show up to work for a week. So we're going to have to try to get around that. You know, I can work on that avenue on my end and we can kind of, you know, shuffle that under the rug, so to speak. But realistically, you know, if you do report it, this is what's going to happen next, you know. And then you try to make in, you got to be real with them, though. You know, and I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. You're going to have to tell your story 500 times after this. That's just a fact of life. Do you are you connected with a therapist team of any sort? Um, well, the Na- man, the Navy has a lot of resources. You get a lawyer as a victim. You get a um, you get you get a JAG officer. You get an army of therapists. Um, on top of that, I've never met a command that did not fully support. The only exception to that is typically carriers. Carriers have a little bit harder of a time just because how big the command is. You know. It's very hard to provide individual support and trying to keep the ball rolling up the chain of command in an expedient manner can sometimes be difficult. But when they have strict timelines for sexual assault victims, I mean, they are dead nuts. If they say they're going to move you in two days, you better believe in 48 hours you'd be better, you're ready to move because they're moving you. You're just moving. To a different ship. Or a different command. To get away from that. Yeah. Depending on the severity of the situation, they'll move you to a different state. And the uh, therapists, do you know what they do, how they help? Um, well, 
they still operate from the perspective that the victim has to has to come to them and you can give them recommendations but we can't force them to seek therapy we just provide it for free right and what by i shouldn't say when these are the navy, navy therapists or they navy therapists they work for fleet and family support and i haven't met a single one that isn't really well equipped to deal with it you know because they have to deal with this crap all the time. Yeah. You know, they're really good people. And the JAG officer, one of the old ones up at TRF, he was awesome. He was he was very serious and very committed to what he was doing. And are you in the Navy now? No. No, I've been out for a while. I still work at the shipyard. I just work on submarines now. I'm a ship fitter. A, as a civilian? Yeah. And uh, so, and you're in therapy. Yeah. And how's that going? It's going good. I mean, my therapy is more centered around how to move forward. The problem with my life up until now is it's been a long series of reactions. You know, I just react to my environment and I try to make it optimal as possible. And in the Navy, that's real easy to do. It's like, if you want to move forward, this is what you got to do. That's it. Yeah. But eventually I got to the point where I didn't want my boss's job, but it's the Navy. So if you don't advance, you're out. Basically, that's the way they look at it. I didn't want to advance. I just didn't. I didn't want my boss's job. I didn't want to be a chief. And um, and a million chiefs are screaming out in pain right now because no one's ever supposed to say that. But <laughs> but regardless of that, you know. So the fellow nerd, you know, Chief O'Brien comes to mind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be a chief? It's the greatest species ever to grace the earth, <laughs> you know. But um, regardless of that, you know, I just, it was time to get out. And so I got out. I still did classes for recertification training for a while for the Navy, and that was really cool. Eventually, school started getting in the way of that because I was in an apprenticeship program. I'm still in an apprenticeship program. Um, And uh, so because of that, I kind of had to stop doing that, and that was kind of frustrating. But Yeah. And So so where where are you in terms of your story of – your childhood is it um i don't know i I, i'm just curious as to um what led you to me i guess (laughs) well there's still a part of me that still needs to derive meaning from everything yeah i feel like in a lot of ways i give a lot of help to a lot of people and i try really hard to my life experience is very unique yeah but i hit a lot of roadblocks still when it comes to deriving that meaning for myself, can I find the meaning for other people? Sure. Absolutely. You know, but every single time that I've ever told my story, there's a little bit more meaning I get out of it. Mm. When I tell it to a classroom of victim advocates who are completely randomly selected out of pools of people who probably didn't even want to be sitting in front of me right now, I almost universally get a good response. You still do that? Um, I'd like to, but I don't do it as much anymore. Mostly because work keeps getting in the way. They expect me to show up for eight hours a day. I'm not really sure what that's all about. But. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to work around it, but I'm not there yet. But um, So you get something out of it. You get meaning yeah, out of it. I get meaning, you know. And, I mean, every class that I taught for a long time, there was a, almost always two or three people. There's like a look that people get when they recognize your story as something that they've lived through. Mm-hmm. Almost every single class of like 10 or 12 people, there's three, two or three, sometimes four or five people. You can just tell. They know. They know. And I get approached a lot after classes. It's like, yeah, man, I've been through something pretty similar to that. You know? Do you get a lot of men? Mostly, yeah. Not a lot of women can empathize, believe it or not. 
a lot of people have isolated experiences of childhood sexual abuse, but um, child like a lot of children who get sucked into trafficking rings like that. I feel I'm not. I don't know the percentage on this, but from my understanding of it, most of the time, you know, young um, young boys is a, a huge market for some reason. I have no idea why. Mm. And uh, some people tell me it's because of vulnerability because young young men are much more vulnerable than young women, like much more vulnerable, mm. you know, um, just because of how we're trained from day one, you know. To be tough, don't ask for help. Well, and stand up for yourself. And the amount of people, and the other side of it is, is even when you look from the perspective of the fact that usually mothers raise children, Mothers are much more cautious of what their daughters are going through than their sons because yeah. because they can empathize with that. They're looking for male predators who are watching their daughters. But I guarantee you, if they had a daughter and a son on the playground, they'd be watching for the people who are watching their daughter a lot more than they're watching for the person who's watching their son. Yeah. But it's just because it's a concept that's so foreign to them. You know, I imagine that's true for everybody, though. Yeah. And... So you always look for things that you can catch. You can't catch. My big thing is you can catch a predator. You can catch the Johnsons of the world. Your your personality is going to tell you when the Johnson of the world shows up that that person is bad news. Like you have something deep inside. It just hits you. You know. I always knew from the very first time I ever met him that that person was just a bad person. He'd walk into the room. It was palpable. It was like an aura. You know, it's hard to, it, but you're never going to, you're never going to catch James. James has James has a genuine concern for that child, even though he wants to do something that is going to inevitably harm him. It's not from a position of not caring. So that empathy is something that feels warming. It doesn't feel malicious, even though the outcome will be malicious. You do know? you believe that James had empathy? Absolutely, no doubt in my mind. I believe that. I believe that he would. I also believe, though, that because of his isolation and because of his loner mentality, you know. I believe that inevitably he was easy to manipulate for everyone who wanted to take advantage of him. Uh, So do you believe that if he could go back, he wouldn't have involved Johnson in his life? I absolutely believe that. I believe that if he could have taken it back, he would have gone to the day that Johnson would have said, well, you either need to help me out or accept the fact that I'm going to extort you. He probably would have taken, he probably would have taken the jail. Which Johnson probably wouldn't have done because, in no. reality, James would have brought Johnson down with him. Well, that, yeah. Yeah. So, did you hear about the USA Olympics no. girl team situation? What happened with that? Oh, well, it was just a, it was a similar situation where you had this trainer. He was a physician who would do all the medical uh, necessities for the USA gymnastics team, the, the women's, the girls' team. And for decades, he was uh, sexually abusing the girls and young women in his uh, office and in other places. And he was also, he was like a James. He was very empathic. People loved him. They thought he was a miracle worker as a physician. Uh, They never would have suspected he would have hurt anyone. He was kind of awkward and nerdy. And uh, when it came out that he had that he had uh, done all these things, you know, everyone was really shocked. And uh, so it's just a similar kind of scenario. Yeah. Ha- have you heard about other f- famous 
sex trafficking cases? Do you, do you read such news stories? Um, every once in a while, but I have a really hard time associating names with things because I'm really bad with names. Oh. But um, there was one... There's one in Oklahoma in the late 90s that I remember was a pretty interesting one, mostly because it actually took place through a school. And, like, there was a principal involved and all this other stuff. And that one was crazy, you know. And I was just all like, well, okay, I can see how it happened. You know, even the stuff that they're going through in Seattle right now, I can I can see. What's happening in Seattle? They have a huge initiative right now in Seattle for trying to combat human trafficking because apparently Seattle's a really major port for it, apparently. For uh, Asian... Inco- for Asian incoming human traffickers. Not necessarily my scenario, but... But you know, similar. But similar in circumstance. Then I can see it, like I can, because if you think about the person you have to be in order to be James, the mentality of Seattle fits that extreme demographic better. Whenever you look at places like Texas, where I grew up, you know, that's going to lend itself to people who are more like Johnson, people who are more callous and unfeeling, because that's what they expect, uh, the assimilating to the culture easier. You know what I mean? Whenever you go to a blue collar job in a place like that, you know, people don't want to talk to you. The person who's going to assimilate the best is the person who wants to be left alone the most, you know, and it's more like the don't ask, don't care policy is what I always called it, you know. Mm. Don't ask me because I don't care. (laughs) Whereas here, it's all like, well, you know, someone like James is highly empathic. Well, most people in Seattle tend towards that demographic a lot more. They want somebody who's personable, who's a little bit awkward and doesn't really fit in with the mainstream, has some polarized opinions on certain things, especially when it comes to LGBTQ rights and things like that. They just have this one part of their personality that just got to keep hidden. That's not hard to do at all. So fitting that demographic is is a huge, huge problem that I would foresee in Seattle whenever thing whenever push comes to shove. What should we do to try to prevent this? Uh, that is a hard animal to tackle. Yeah. Uh, if you're trying to help James not be James anymore, that's a different animal. Right. In order to reach out for those people, the first thing you have to do is have some type of anonymous program that allows people to seek help for those types of things anonymously right. before they commit the act. The reality is a society doesn't care about them until they hurt a child. Right. In the meantime, they just want to ostracize them. Right. So, yeah. I, I inevitably get emails from people cause I'll say things along these lines of, of what they're doing is wrong and they need to stop. And if we actually care about that, then we need to actually reach out to them and right. say, um, you know, let, 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 let's help you. And uh, it gets weird because it's like, well, what if they've committed crimes in the past? Are you saying that that you're just going to let that go? And what I'm saying is like, that's yes, because that's better than the alternative, which is that they they are left alone, isolated, and right. more likely to abuse again. Um, so as you were saying, it's not a matter of justice. It's a matter of actually like helping society right. and helping people. So. And so if you want to remove the perpetrator... That's that's something you can tackle realistically. That's something I I can I can relate to. But in order to do that, you have to remove the perpetrator by helping them, and that's the only real way. And once you start doing that, once that starts becoming a thing, then you know, people will start just seeing it more like some type of affliction that that they just need to be helped with, man. People have afflictions every day, you know. 
Okay. And um, I guess it's similar, not obviously the same, but if someone was breaking into houses because they had a meth addiction. Right, right, right. They don't want to break into houses, but they're breaking into houses because they're addicted to meth and they can't get money. And so they're breaking into houses to steal stuff so they can sell it so they can get meth and they have they have a problem. And if we're going to ostracize all meth addicts, then we're just going to continue to have people break into our houses. Right. But if we actually reach out to them and say, even though you might have broken into some houses, we're willing to work with you because we know that if we reach out to you, one, you'll get the help you need, and two, you'll stop breaking into people's houses. Right, right. <laughs> the, you, you attack the source, which is the meth addiction. Right. They're the source of the of pedophiles, of pedophilia in general, uh, I believe, is their inability to associate you know, appropriate sexual behavior with the appropriate person needs to be attributed to, you know, the, where it gets tricky, I think though, is how do you determine that association? Because it's a slippery slope, you know, do you, do you try to associate them towards adult males? Mm -hmm. If their target was, was child males, or do you try to associate them with adult females? Well, what do you think for James would have worked? Um, honestly, I'm in my mind, it's kind of a fantasy, of course, but uh, to think this way, but I imagine that he probably could have just lived a good life with anybody that was an adult if he would have been helped in the right way. You know, I tried to assume that in the perfect world, everybody's bisexual and they just assume perfect life mates and then everybody's happy. (laughs) I mean, I ended up with somebody I never thought I'd hook up with, so... Yeah. yeah. She's from New Jersey. Never thought saw that one coming. Yeah, why? Um, she's very outspoken and very opinionated. She can be pretty pretty um pretty harsh sometimes, you know. And I don't mind that. She's never harsh towards me. She's never actually even I don't even think she's ever even raised her voice at me. But she raises her voice a lot at pretty much everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very hard to yell at me though. I think I'm too calm. I don't, I can't remember the last time I actually raised my voice in anger at somebody. So, Mm. um, but yeah, I think that if he would have grown up on, you know, on the fit on a sexual preference level, I think if he would have been able to attribute that to something healthy, I imagine that person would have been anybody that could have cared for him. So you were saying about the sex rings, you have to go to where they are. What what do you mean by that? Well, at some point, people have to find a connection. And it's not an easy connection to make. Usually you know, on the internet, right? Well, like where? I like if know. you had to name a place. Dark web or something? Okay, dark web. You know, you even look at dark web. The average person cannot access the dark web. Yeah, I, I don't know how to access it. So where do people find out how to access the dark web? Google, how do I access the dark web? (laughs) I guess, you know, I don't know, you know, but at some point then they have to make that jump and risk being on some watch list somewhere. Right. And once they're on that watch list, how do they undercut being able to get marked for looking for child sex slaves? Right. You know, they have to be extraordinarily technologically advanced to be in the network that way. What they do in in Texas, you know, where you grew up, because was the internet around back then? The internet was around. I mean, it was like AOL, but you had chat rooms. Yeah. You know? So is that how they... Um, I know that everybody that was in that arena somehow connected through Johnson and his other contacts. But how? Do you you have any idea? 
Um, well, James and him met because somehow Johnson found out about James. I know that. I don't know how he met. I don't know how he found out. I don't know how he met. I do know that the teachers, though, all, all, all four of them, they had something going on to where they found each other out. And then they were on some chat room somewhere. And then that's how Johnson met them. Like an anonymous chat room or something? I guess, you know, and I imagine it was more than likely, especially at the time, the way people found people in chat rooms who were more like them, is they would go to chat rooms and they'd throw out something that was semi-controversial. Yeah. And then wait for somebody to attach to it. Right. And then they try to push it a little bit at a time to see how receptive they were to the ideology. Right. You know, and if you have enough time and commitment to it, you can do that. And so if you were looking for a localized group, especially at the time, you're looking for a U.S. hookup chats or something like that, and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and I imagine that that's how that worked back then with chat rooms. Seems like something the FBI could be monitoring or something. I don't know. Um, maybe they are. Yeah. I know chat rooms are highly monitored now. I can't imagine anybody would get away with anything on a chat room. Yeah. You know? I mean... Even then, most chat rooms are are vehicles for people to not be themselves anyway. Yeah. You know, to entertain perverse thoughts without having to worry about the concept of being found out about other people because you're nobody, you're anonymous. Right. You know, but in the modern era, you would have to use some vehicle through the dark web. Do you think this is happening in Seattle right now? Do you think there are sex trafficked kids being sold in, you know... In covert rings and things like that. Um, I do, unfortunately. Um, Uh, Obviously, immigrants are more easily victimized than are often, uh, or people that are undocumented, but... Well, kind of. So people who are undocumented who are with parents, who came over with their parents who are also undocumented, most likely will not ever run into that problem. And the reason why is because their parents have to keep a very close eye on them all the time. They're undocumented immigrants. So just through their own survival necessity, they keep a close eye on their children. You know what I mean? And so if they're with their parents, sure. But then you had the case of that one girl. They found like six different instances of six different uh, semen samples in this girl who got ferried across the southern border, you know, and it's just all like and she's like 12 or 13 yeah, that stuff's horrific. She came across with a person who wasn't even her father who was pretending to be her father, you know? And it's just all like, what the hell do you do with that? And then on top of that, how do you catch f- females who are sexually assaulting people? How do you even catch them? Vaginal fluid doesn't transmit nearly as easily as, you know, as ejaculation. Were those, were any of those people, Johnson and otherwise, caught? Um, In a lot of ways... Yes. So there was a cop, apparently. I didn't know it at the time. But there was a cop, apparently, who was in that whole thing. And while under investigation, he committed suicide. Um, I know the teachers resigned. In the Johnson ring? A police officer? Yeah. Wow. And I didn't know that at the time. Honestly, I don't even know who it was. I kind of found out through a friend of a friend. Um, So I actually don't even really know how factual it is. But it came up very many years later, so I doubt they'd bring it up if it wasn't somewhat true. Yeah. Um, but um, James got caught. Johnson disappeared off the face of the map. I don't know what happened to him. I never really heard anything else about him. Ever. James got caught as a member of this of no, this sex. 
Um, I don't know if it was a member of the sex ring, but I know he got, he got called a, caught as a pedophile. Okay. Um, and then I imagine everything that resulted after that was probably pretty awful. Um, and I think that that... Did that he go to jail? Uh, I think so. I'm not positive. I wasn't... It was really hard to track people back then. I couldn't go to Facebook. There was no such thing or MySpace. So after I was not associated with them anymore, it was many years before I tried looking into them. And all I know is there was a news article that was, uh, that mentioned him briefly. And that was about it, you know, and I and had then a hard he died. And I know he's dead. Yeah. That's all his obituary. Yeah. Uh, was he elderly or did they talk about anything about him in his obituary? Um, it was very brief. It was like a standard news article one, you know, the ones they make up for everybody. Yeah. And um, I'm not really sure what all happened. It was basically like he was born this day, died this day. And um, how many victims do you think went through that? Uh, as, as far as I know, there was at least eight. At during, least during your time, during my time. But I mean, my Michael was another person. He committed suicide too. But Joseph committed suicide, and then there was a few others. Another one that always kind of struck me was this guy named Gary. And he was always around too. He was gay. And he was he was very flamboyantly gay, and um, really into cocaine. But whatever. So he also was not part of the ring, I guess. Even though he hung around a lot, and he was. I mean, even thinking back, he seemed like a very high risk personality for being caught up in that. And they never, never even entertained it. Huh. I still don't know why to this day. I'm not sure what the picking criteria is. It still confuses me to this day. Yeah. Like Joseph kind of makes sense because, I mean, for somebody who seeks power, what's the ultimate power trip than knowing that you had to send a kid home to parent, to parents that you've convinced him thinks are going to kill him if he ever comes out about the horrific abuse that you've been committing to him three days a week, you know? And so in that regard, it's just all like I can understand that, you know? When you're talking about like Nikolai is another one, he's just like I don't even know, man. Really, really quiet kid had really good grades. I don't even know how they found him to begin with. He was like three school districts over from where I was at, and I'm just all like I don't even understand. Like it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, you know, it's just amazing to hear this story. I have to tell you, I mean, the. As a therapist, I've heard many stories of sexual abuse uh, that go on for years and years uh, from family members, parents. But to hear about a organized mafia in a town that comprises of teachers and police officers that... I mean, it's sensational. If you made a movie about this, people would be like, oh, come on, a police officer. Well, finding this crap out later didn't make it any easier to wrap my head around, man. Yeah. You know, a lot of it's just all like, I can't believe that happened. Or a, fe- a female, female, I mean, how, there, did you say there are four female teachers? Yeah. Four, fe- I mean, maybe one, maybe, but four female teachers, that's ridiculous. You're just making that up. Exactly. And... But I know these things happen uh, because abuse from sexual abuse from women is a real thing. Uh, it's uh, not as frequent as male perpetrators, but for sure females do perpetrate. Sexual, and I think it sexual. comes from a different place. Okay, I really do. What do you mean? 
Well, whenever men try to deign uh, sexual intercourse with other people, they I just think it comes from a different place than it does with women. I think the reason why you don't hear about the women side of it a lot of times is for, first of all, if a woman told another woman that she was sexually abused by a teacher, that'd be a pretty big deal. If a man told another man that he was sexually abused by a teacher, he might get a high five. Right. You know, and that happens. And that happens. And especially if you consider yourself a victim and you know the person you tell does not consider you a victim. Right. That doesn't make it any easier to talk about it at all. No. You know. No. I mean, I know I often say this on the podcast, is that for victims of all sorts, it's hard to come forward. It given, is. Given our society. Uh but in this weird twist of events, it's a, it's a lot easier for a woman to come forward being sexually abused than it is for a man to come forward being sexually yeah, abused. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to understand that I'm I'm at the level of comfort now to where I don't really care what people think about me. I know for a fact that after I leave here today, more than likely there's going to be three or four people at work that probably are going to hear this, and they know who I am. They even know I'm coming here today. I just don't care, you know, because reality is, is when I go to work, I just go to work. You know, the only person I really had to come to grips with was my wife. And I come to grips with that. I'm good. We're good. She knows, you know, and she has her own stories, you know, and she has a lot of them. But it wasn't surprising to me to hear it. And the reason why we talk about it so freely is because it's easy to talk about with someone who's been through it. There's no shyness between us. You know, and I think that our relationship has really come a long way because of that, because there's no secrets. But it has to start somewhere. And I think that ultimately the hardest part for most people is they they find it easier to hold on to it and they put it off till tomorrow. And then eventually they realize that the tomorrow when they're going to be comfortable to talk about it is never going to come. So it's better to just bury it, yeah. you know. And I don't do anything out of social obligation because if I was going to do this out of social obligation, and then I would have done this years ago when something could have been done about it. So even me, myself, I'm guilty of not necessarily looking to stop it from happening to other people, from the people it happened from. Because honestly, realistically, those people could still be out there doing the same crap. The odds aren't good, but who knows? Maybe, you know, and I wouldn't even know how, where to begin with them anyway. So in that sense, as a victim, you have to understand what you're looking for. Are you trying to heal yourself or are you trying to get justice? You're trying to heal yourself, man. The only way to heal yourself is honesty. And the hardest person to be honest with is yourself. So don't start there. Be honest with other people. Hmm. You know? Okay, we'll get to you. You know, that's fine. But make your reality truth first. Living a lie sucks. I hate it. It drives me crazy. You know? And so because of that, I just stopped. Eventually, I just got open with it. And once I became more and more open with it, life just became easier. Like everything became easier, you know, and people accept it now. It's just something I talk about, like as casually as I'm talking to you right now. And for that reason, people, when they talk to me about it, they don't feel victimized just by hearing the story. Because that was a really big problem I used to come up with a lot. I tell my story from the perspective of somebody who was still having to unravel crap. And I'd be victimizing the person I was talking to, and they didn't even, nothing happened to them. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they'd get to a point like, just stop, man. I, I've heard enough. I get it, man. Your life sucks. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's what we call vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. Right, yeah. Uh, and it is real. To yeah. hear these stories is 
potentially traumatic for some people who um, aren't used to it or are hearing too much of it or um, don't have a method that a lot of therapists do, such as myself, in terms of how how to listen and how not to um, terrorize oneself. Like, if I really and I did and I did a little bit because I because um, it, it's I, I can withstand it, but only for brief periods. As you're telling me the story, I only occasionally kind of go to like true empathy to what you're going through as much as I can extend myself into your world. Because if I, if I do that for, uh, you know, 60 minutes straight talking to you, like I'd be a wreck and I mean, I'd survive and it's, you know, it's not the end of the world, but, um, it, it, I got things I got to do today. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, but I did a little bit of it because I can't help it. It's just, uh, your story is so well told and so so tragic and just so real you know because we all know that these things happen and to hear these stories in, in its detail and to hear you know I, I just want to commend you for your strength I don't know where you got it uh, maybe you're born with it or something I don't oh, know man. Uh, uh, you you have a tremendous tremendous strength and a tremendous wisdom of uh, of everything, <laughs> not only your <laughs> life but just you know it translates and your your wisdom translates into a lot of different areas, not just um, the the areas that are directly related to what you're talking about. Um, to be truthful uh, is the way to heal. And if it's hard to be truthful to yourself, then just be truthful to other people <laughs> first. You know, I don't think I've ever heard such a brilliant thing. Um, and everyone needs to hear your story, man. Every everybody needs to hear this. I hope everyone does hear this. It'd be cool. Yeah. Hopefully, they get something out of it. I I I got tremendous out of it when you first contacted me. I was just like. I was just like, oh yeah, this is a story that the listeners need to hear about. But I had no idea what we were going to get into. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever does, man. If you can imagine my therapist, Nuri, he's a really good guy. I love him. He's yeah. an awesome guy. Yeah. And dude, like I could see him, like it's a visual thing. Yeah. And I've seen it a million times, so it didn't bother me. But I'd start talking and I'd be like... 30 minutes in you could see like his face like kind of cringe at something for a second and then he snaps out of it you know he has to for it but every once in a while you know he starts sucking in and he's like i, I got attached for a second okay, getting too deep yeah. you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's like man you just speak too well man yeah. and i'm just all like yeah it's a problem man i don't know what to tell you no it's a, <laughs> it's a good thing it's he's a good thing he's like you suck people in bro <laughs> yeah that's what i was gonna say it's not just your story it's you as a person you know it's um you have a a very warm sort of um, inviting personality or something, you know, someone who um, I'm sure people can relate to just, you know, even if they don't have a similar story, they can just sort of really connect with you. So it made it really hard to date, believe it or not. Yeah. So? Um, well, usually about an hour into any given date, someone's just telling me their problems, their life problems. And I'm just yeah. like, I man, I didn't want dinner anyway. It's cool, man. Let's just talk about it, you know. And it's fine. It never bothered me. I like hearing about people's life struggles, and most of the time, it's really inconsequential anyway. I just like people in general, mm. you know. And um, 
after that, I think the whole truth thing is a big deal because what's nice about being truthful to other people is, is you can give it in small doses and you can control it. The hardest part about being truth with, true with yourself is, is once the gate starts to open, it's really hard to close it. Yeah. And if you're left to your own devices and if you think you're going to discover truth in a healthful manner while sitting alone in your room, you're crazy. Because you have no one, nothing that's going to get you out of it if you start going down that hole. There's no ladder. But if I'm talking to you right now, I know I can change the subject. You also change the subject. And I c- I've gone as far as I need to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's as much truth as I need today. I'm mm-hmm. done. Yeah. You know? So and to close it out, let's uh, switch gears to nerd stuff. What are you nerding out on lately? Um, the guys at work play Warframe, and they got me back into Warframe. Warframe? What's that? It's a video game. It's oh. crazy. And Final Fantasy, the TCG. I love it. It's awesome. Okay. Um, no one ever plays Settlers with me anymore. Like the actual board game? Yeah. I love Good. it too much, man. And no one likes it as much as I do. So. Me and my wife play Settlers. I actually play Settlers on my phone sometimes by myself. Because <laughs> no one wants to play with you? <laughs> I'm too serious, man. I'm like, dude, just give me the sheep. <laughs> uh, my wife has a, a song that she sings because occasionally she she you know has too many sheep and she's trying to get rid exactly. of exactly and we have this song called too many fucking sheep <laughs> yeah it happens all the time yeah man. yeah sheep port is the most viable square no one understands it everybody underestimates it like why do you got the sheep port man you'll see man <laughs> you'll see <laughs> do you have all the expansions and stuff um i have the four to six player one i got the game of thrones one i got a couple others okay oh, fairs yeah see on the phone i have the seafarers and some other extension too or it you know the varieties of different games yeah and i mean i do a, a lot knights. of is there a knights one yeah there's a knights one too that one's yeah. pretty cool yeah that one has a lot to do with the biggest armies you yeah. know type of thing but right, that's right. pretty cool and then um yeah war machine i play a lot of war machine so war machine is that like final fantasy or what is that like? <laughs> sorry excuse me um no it's a tabletop Oh, okay. uh, it's kind of like Warhammer 40k, kind of that sort oh, okay. of thing. It's just a smaller scale. I really you like got the painting. rulers out and stuff. And yeah, yeah. I really like painting a lot, and uh, it's very therapeutic. So for people who don't know, it's it's a tabletop game with figures, and you have probably like a point system where you buy your army, right, right, and your opponent. It's like chess. And your opponent buys an army, and then there's if you're really into it, you have terrain like exactly. trees and houses, and, and we do all that. We're super nerds, and you uh, you you say, okay, this aren't this unit can move forward five inches and can cast this spell, and you roll the damage, and then you know the idea is you're trying to kill the other opponent, right? Yeah. And um, I do Starfinder sometimes. I've been on Swing Shift lately though, so I haven't been able to play. But I'm going to be getting back in on my Wednesday group. Starfinder's legit. So do you have, like, friends out there that you play these games with? Um, I do Roll20, the online sequencing, oh, okay. because they all live in different states now because they were all friends in the Navy. So Yeah. And then they moved on with their lives and had to go be productive and adults, whatever, yeah. leaving me with my stupid farm. I have a farm. It seems like there there would be enough nerds in the area that you could play with. I mean, um, There are, but my wife prefers to live in the country. So I live in the country. 
I have a beautiful house. It's on a lake. I love it. I have chickens. I love but my chickens. it's hard to get. But there's no nerds out there, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> lots of guns, lots of rednecks, and then chickens, lots of chickens. So this is on the this is on the peninsula somewhere? Um, Yeah, it's over in Bremerton. Okay. Seabeck. I don't know if you know where Seabeck is or mm-hmm. Belfair. They're pretty far out there, but I got five acres out there. It's pretty legit. Got a nice lake. Five acres? Yeah. Wow. It's pretty awesome. And if you can imagine, because my wife is amazing at real estate, she's the most amazing person ever at real estate, she ended up getting it pretty cheap, so I was pretty happy. Mm. Under a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. No, it was only like 400 thousand. Wow. It was pretty good. And did you build your own house on it? or? No, we bought it like that with the house on it, five-bedroom okay. house. Wow. Pretty big deal. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, she's awesome, though. She's a rare, very unique real estate agent. She only usually works with like two clients at a time, if you can imagine that. Hmm. And because in her mind, she's all like, he, she enjoys real estate. She genuinely enjoys it. The money is a fringe benefit to her. She just really likes finding people cool houses. That's hmm. what she loves. You know, to her, it's like a life problem that she just wants to sort out for you. Hmm. So, How'd I, you meet her? Um, I rented a room from her. Met her on Craigslist. And uh, I lived in her house for a while, and um, I actually became friends with her kids first, believe it or not. Hmm. And I actually didn't like her that much at first. Hmm. I really didn't, because she was from Jersey, and she yelled too much. And uh, she doesn't cook as good as me, but she thinks she does, (laughs) which is not healthy. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I became friends with her kids first. They were really big nerds. And the youngest kid, Duncan, I showed him this movie called Major Pain. And uh, then he wouldn't stop watching it for like a month. And it was driving her crazy. And there was another lady in the house named Renee. And she had this huge infatuation with me, like serious obsession with me. She would walk in my room all the time and talk about these things that she's going to do. She was, And then she'd always come home with these random dudes. She was just a weird girl. And one night when I was hiding from her, the only person I could really hide in the room of was Heather. I was like, oh, I need to talk to Heather about something. I'm just going to dip in here real quick. Just stay there, you know? (laughs) And so I stayed in there for like four hours. And then I was like, okay, we need to hook up, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest is history. (laughs) Well, thanks for uh, joining me, John. Uh, I, are you on Twitter or anything? Do you want people to contact you? If I'm sure that people are going to want to reach out to you. I mean, because they could email me and I could forward um, to you or something. Facebook's probably the best. Okay. Right where, where do they find you on Facebook? Um, just look up, well, hell. Um, I don't know. My name's John Moffat, J-O-H-N-M-O-F-F-I-T-T. Uh, I live in Bremerton. So and if, if you, you want, can find that, and I have his email. So if you want me to, uh, if you, you can email me, and I can forward along to you, John. And if you want to communicate perfect. with them, that would be fine. Yeah, too. that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I like talking to people. So if you invite me on Messenger, I most likely will respond. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, John. It's, no worries, man. Um, like I said, it's uh, to 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 share you and yourself, and also your story, and your strength and your wisdom and your advocacy um, is truly inspirational. Appreciate it. And thanks you for uh, thanks to you listeners out there for joining us. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>